my dear friends, and welcome to a special Christmas edition of Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, and I'm so grateful that we can spend time together in the scriptures. I just got off a Zoom call with 200 incredible missionaries in the Texas-Houston South mission. It was an amazing experience to be able to feel of their spirit and try to share some things that might buoy them up during this holiday season. And I pray for a similar spirit in what I'm hoping to give to each of you today, a Christmas gift of sorts, one that is kind of like the ones that as parents, they always say they prefer. So I'm hoping that holds true here. It's the homemade kind and not a lot of professional polish, but just you, me, and the scriptures trying to make sense of what I consider the most important word of Christmas. And that word is condescension. My hope is that as we talk about that word today, that it becomes synonymous with Christmas for you from this Christmas forward. The word itself is pretty simple to take apart and put back together. Condescension, the con prefix means with. If you're a Spanish speaker, con is with. If you're Portuguese, com is with. And then descend, we know, means to come down or to go down. So to condescend means to come down with us. In the Savior's case, in order to be like us, so that then, a new word, there could be a con ascension, that we could rise with him to become more like him because of all that he's done for us. Now to me, the reason that Christmas and condescension are synonymous terms comes from an experience that Nephi had when he was trying to make sense of his father's dream, of the vision of the tree of life. I want you to imagine for a second playing Pictionary, okay? Where you have a set of cards and you're flying through them and you see a name or a word and you're supposed to draw something in hopes that your team can guess what it is that you're trying to depict. Now, if you were playing Gospel Pictionary, I'm sure some words would be easier to illustrate than others. If you moved the card and saw Temple, even me, a horrible artist, could probably at least do some kind of an outline. If it was a, a little harder word like tithing, I think I could still pull it off, just make nine tally marks over here and one over there and hope that they figure things out. I'm, I'm a stick figure artist. That's as good as I ever get. But what if it was a word that was more theological or abstract? How do you depict that? So what I want you to imagine is moving the card. You just did something easy like gold plates and you turn to the next one and it says condescension and your heart sinks. How on earth do I draw condescension? Now, maybe a downward arrow and you get the, the descend part and you hope that your team can figure it out. But that's not exactly what the angel did when his responsibility was to illustrate condescension in such a way that Nephi would be able to understand it. You see, the way the story begins in 1 Nephi chapter 11, he asks the angel to understand what his father saw. I want to know the interpretation of the dream is what he asked for. And the starting point for that interpretation is the focal point of the vision, the tree itself. Well, the angel tells Nephi to, verse 12, look. This is Pictionary after all. And in verse 13, he shows him the city of Nazareth. And there in Nazareth, a virgin that is exceedingly fair and white. Those adjectives, fair and white, parallel the way the fruit was described. So the angel's trying to get Nephi to think of some kind of parallel here between what he saw in the dream, the tree, and what he's seen here in this vision, this virgin. Now the angel asks him, what do you see? And Nephi responds in 15, a virgin most beautiful and fair above all other virgins. To which the angel then asks the question, knowest thou the condescension of God? Now, I can picture Nephi there kind of doing a double take, like, wait, wait, what? 
you, you lost me somewhere. I, I'm not seeing how you're connecting these doctrinal dots. I saw Nazareth. I saw this virgin. And now you're asking about condescension? I have no idea what that word means. But for Nephi, he does what any of us should do when we're asked a question we can't answer. Well, instead of fully admitting our ignorance, at least tell them something that we do know. Maybe you'll get a few extra points on the essay portion of your exam. In verse 17, his response, which is beautiful, I know that he loveth his children. That's what I do know. Nevertheless, I do not know the meaning of all things. Specifically, I don't know what you mean by condescension. Well, based on his answer, he was closer to comprehension than he admitted. Condescension does boil down to the love of God for his children. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that he sent his son to earth to descend to be with and in so many ways to be like you and me. And that's where Christmas comes in. Do you understand why the angel is using Christmas as his illustration of condescension? Nephi finally gets it. In verse 18, the angel says, Behold, the virgin whom thou seest is the mother of the Son of God, after the manner of the flesh. That idea of the flesh is going to be important. And then after the passage of a little time, in verse 20, Nephi sees again, and beholds this virgin bearing a child in her arms. To help unlock condescension, the angel is drawing Christmas. As he explains it in verse 21, Behold the Lamb of God, yea, even the Son of the Eternal Father. Knowest thou the meaning of the tree which thy father saw? This might have felt disconnected in Nephi's case, but it was completely connected for the angel. You want to see the tree? Well, let me help you understand the love of God. Let me show it to you in the form of history unfolding. The birth of Jesus, a beautiful, fair virgin, a chosen vessel of the Lord, giving birth to the Son of God after the manner of the flesh. The only begotten Son of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. In fact, that should introduce us to another important theological vocabulary word, one that we don't often use as members of the church, and that's the doctrine of incarnation. Now, that's an important etymology for that one, too. In is the prefix, and it means we know that one, in, inside, into. But carnation comes from that Latin root, carne. Spanish speakers, again, you're at an advantage, or Romance languages in general. But it means meat, or as we would say in terms of the body, flesh. I told you that flesh would be important here. If it's after the manner of the flesh, Jesus as the only begotten Son of God in the flesh, that's incarnate, that's incarnation. The way John begins his beautiful gospel, that in the beginning was the Word, but later he says, and the Word was made flesh. The Word of God was incarnated. The Son of God came down, he condescended, and that is what Christmas is all about. In fact, it's what Easter is all about as well. And one gift I hope to offer today is that in our minds to connect inseparably Christmas and Easter. We believe and understand that those both happened at the same time of the year, in the spring, around Passover. And there would have been no Easter without Christmas. And I don't just mean chronologically, that Jesus had to be born in order for him eventually to die. That's obvious. But the way he was born was essential 
for the way he would be able to die and atone for our sins in the process. I'm amazed at how many Christmas carols actually hint at Easter along the way. Fans of the LDS hymn book sometimes feel a little robbed that there aren't more Easter hymns in the book. And I would simply say, well, go and read all the Christmas ones because they're aiming in that direction. And so many of them, that aim constitutes condescension and incarnation with an eye to the atonement that those events make possible. How's this line for the doctrine of incarnation from O Come All Ye Faithful? Son of the Father, now in flesh appearing. In flesh is incarnation. And for condescension, how about this verse from Once in Royal David's City? He came down to earth from heaven. That line is the condescension. It's then expanded. Who is God and Lord of all. You see, that's the, the shock value, the surprise factor of condescension. I mean, in some ways, we all condescended, right? We, or we all descended, at least. We all came down from earth, or to earth from heaven. But the difference in Jesus' case, he is the firstborn son of God in the spirit. He is God the second. This is Jehovah emptying himself of premortal glory, as Paul describes to the Philippians. That's the surprise that he would come down to be with us. He came down to earth from heaven who is God and Lord of all. And his shelter was a stable and his cradle was a stall. Every line of this verse we should be saying with surprise, with the poor and mean and lowly, lived on earth our Savior holy. The doctrine of condescension should be one of the most surprising sermons we could ever preach. It's most simply condensed by the great Methodist hymnist Charles Wesley. So grateful that we have been able to borrow those hymns to put in our hymn book as well. In Hark the Herald Angels Sing, in six words, he teaches the doctrine of condescension. Mild he lays his glory by. That is breathtaking. That he takes his primordial divine glory and mildly and meekly lays it by. Occupies a manger, enters a stable, comes into flesh. The Father of heaven and earth becomes the Son of God upon this earth of his own creating. Now, like I said, Christmas is meant to point us to Easter doctrinally, theologically. The incarnation is what allows for the atonement. The condescension prepares him for the crucifixion. There are so many other parallels between the two events. Many scholars believe that the stable was not what we would picture but rather some kind of a, a cave in a hillside of sorts. So if the baby Jesus occupied a borrowed cave at his birth, it seems so fitting that he would occupy a borrowed cave, the sepulcher of Joseph of Arimathea, for his burial. To see Mary in agony beside the manger, and then a much older Mary in agony beneath the cross to see angels announcing his birth in Bethlehem, and an angel sent to Gethsemane to strengthen him. 
Who do those angels originally appear to? Shepherds, abiding over their flocks by night. When I was a kid, I used to think, man, do shepherds ever get any sleep? They got to watch their sheep and their flocks even then? Until someone pointed out, well, if this is early spring, this is lambing season. And if this is Bethlehem, just a few miles away from Jerusalem, these may have been temple flocks. And for one of these sheep to become a Paschal lamb, a Passover meal, they had to be the firstborn. And I don't know if sheep are anything like human beings, but if my own children are any indication, babies like to be born at night. The inconvenience of it all is just so ironic. Well, if these shepherds are abiding over their flocks, keeping watch over them by night, it's so that they can identify which of all these lambs is worthy to become the Passover. So fitting that they, those same shepherds would come to the stable and identify, recognize the Lamb of God who someday would be sacrificed for them and for all of us. The wise men, fast forward a little bit, and they come with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. One of my favorite Christmas carols is We Three Kings of Orient Are. And in the lyrics to those, that song, you see the symbolism behind the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh. Each verse describes one of them, but it's all summed up at the end. King and God and sacrifice. Those are all atonement looking. The birth prefiguring the death. Even when you think of gold given at his birth and 30 pieces of silver being exchanged at his death. To think of frankincense and what happens at the crucifixion? The veil of the temple is rent in twain from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top. It's not us trying to force our way into heaven. It is heaven opening itself to us. This is condescension. And now an ascension back in return. And what lies right before that opened veil? The altar of incense. And myrrh, given by a wise man, at Jesus' birth, also provided by another wise man at his death, this time Nicodemus, in preparation of the body for burial. There are so many beautiful parallels between Christmas and Easter. As we've studied the Book of Mormon this year, perhaps you've noticed the one in 3 Nephi chapter 1, the original Nephite Christmas. I love that story. And to see these people staring death and darkness in the face. And if darkness came, then death would immediately follow. When that ultimatum was placed upon their faith, if he doesn't come by this moment, then your hope has been in vain and your faith has been in vain as well. Well, he did come that very night. And what did that make of the first Nephite Christmas? A victory of life over death, of light over darkness. In fact, of forgiveness over sin. Because once they recognized what had occurred that first Christmas night, so many people came to Nephi confessing their sins of wickedness and disbelief that preceded it. And I love the phrase that's used there, that there was a great remission of sins. We usually reserve life and light and remission of sins for Easter. For the Nephites, it came at Christmas, giving us all a preview of coming attractions.
of exactly what the Son of God had condescended to earth to be able to do. Now, part of this condescension, especially the surprise nature of it, is that divinity would condescend to take on mortality. If you've been watching these videos throughout this year, I talk a lot about proving contraries, that great statement from Joseph Smith. And the humanity-divinity contrary is one of my favorites. To help navigate the messiness of church history, for example, or just some of the issues about translation and so on. But we, of all people, should be able to grapple with that contrary because it lies at the heart of the condescension and incarnation of Christ. That divinity would take on humanity. Our evangelical friends, the way they describe it is fully God and fully man. And we're okay with that definition. Jesus was both. And to see that duality suggested in certain events of the birth of Jesus, of Christmas, again, helps to illustrate why Christmas is such a perfect picture for condescension. Think, for example, of Luke chapter 2, that all-important chapter that we tend to read every Christmas Eve. In fact, I'll confess, when my children were little, we always tried to pull off the, the Christmas play, the nativity play. And our oldest daughter would be Mary, and our oldest son would be Joseph, or whichever newest child came along was the baby Jesus. As the family expanded, we could have some extra parts, right? A wise man, a shepherd. Uh, many people would have to play multiple roles. So now you're the angel. Now you've got to shift to this. Quick costume change backstage. Well, eventually it got either so, I don't know, overwrought and, stress, and stressful, or, as was often the case, it just kind of descended into a farce when we couldn't get everything, into the words right or anything. I remember one fateful Christmas years ago, when my children were still little, I finally just put the kibosh on the Christmas play and said, can we just try something different for a moment? And we turned off every light in the house, unplugged the Christmas tree lights, and lit a candle. And we sat in a circle, the seven of us, as close as we could get. And with the dim glow of a single flame flickering over my scriptures, just red. Luke chapter 2, and then added Matthew chapter 2, and added 3 Nephi chapter 1. And there was such a simple but sweet spirit of just that flicker of light that was entering the world to dispel darkness. A little family gathered around it, huddled it over the light and the word and allowing the Holy Ghost to teach us the beauty of what took place that first Christmas night. I don't think we've done a nativity play since, but that has become one of our cherished Christmas traditions. Now, often when you read Luke 2, you stop around verse 19 or 20. The shepherds have come and gone, glorifying and praising God. Mary is keeping all these things and pondering them in her heart. But if you'll just fast forward a little, keep reading a few more verses. A week has passed. It's time to have the baby Jesus circumcised, to become fully a member of the house of Israel, a covenant son of Israel. Mary has passed through her period of purification according to the law of Moses, as it says in verse 22. So fitting, by the way. Ironic in a way, but fitting in another, that bringing life into the world constitutes a fall from ceremonial purity for a Jewish woman. 
this new mother has allowed herself to come into a fallen state in order to move the plan forward. Sound a little like Mother Eve? There's such beautiful parallelism between those two mothers, the mother of the Son of God and the mother of every son and daughter of God. We so often think of the fall and the atonement as those bookends, a garden on either side, and that Jesus is the new Adam, and that's all true and beautiful. But to see also Mary as the new Eve, Eve bringing death into the world, and Mary bringing life into the world, both of which are required. There is no condescension without the possibility of death, and no re-ascension without the promise of eternal life. If Easter tells us that there are gardens on either end, Eden and Gethsemane, then Christmas reminds us that there is fruit at both ends as well. The fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and the fruit of the tree of life, as Nephi saw in this vision of Christmas condescension. Now, part of this purification process, which, again, the first seven days after the birth of a son is ceremonial impurity, so that on the eighth day, the woman becomes clean again. There's a second period, by the way, that lasts another 33 days and before full reintegration into the family of faith. And those numbers are amazing, because if there's seven days of impurity, then you become new on the eighth day. One week has passed, a new first day, a new beginning, a new creation. It's one of the reasons they were circumcised on the eighth day, why we are baptized at the eighth year. And if you take those seven and add another 33, then what do you have? 40 days of wandering in the wilderness before God has prepared you to come into his promised land. Beautiful symbolism here. In verse 23, explaining a little bit more of the law of Moses as far as purification after birth. Every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. According to the Old Testament, every firstborn son was that way. But in no conditions was it more appropriate than in this one. The firstborn son of God, holy to the Lord, and allowing all of us to become holy to him as well. And part of the sacrifice that went along with this Mosaic ritual in verse 24 was to bring a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. According to the book of Leviticus, that at least was enough for a poor person. This lets us know just how poverty-stricken Joseph and Mary were. Because usually it was a lamb as one of the sacrifices that in this case for the poor could be replaced with a bird. Now, one of the first times I taught the law of Moses in seminary, I kept being haunted by the voice of Amulek because in Alma 34, he tells us that every wit of the law of Moses, every little detail, is meant to point forward to that great and last sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And again, that haunting voice ringing in my ears let me know that, oh, great, every page of Leviticus, for example, is supposed to teach me something about the atonement. And I took Amulek at his word, and it forced me to slow way down in my scripture study, trying to make sense of each element of each ritual. I still haven't figured out them all, far from it. But I had an incredible experience in the first chapter of Leviticus when I really started trying to do this. Because in Leviticus 1, it describes this kind of sacrifice and what is supposed to be done 
with the bird. So though it's not here in Luke chapter 2, it's implied. It's what took place when Mary brings the baby Jesus and this pair of turtle doves, sacrificing these two in order to return to her the son that she just brought into the world. You see, the firstborn son was supposed to belong to God. By offering sacrifice, you're able to keep that child for yourself. Consecrating the tribe of Levi for the priesthood was another way of doing that. But this sacrifice accomplished many of the same purposes. So interesting, by the way, that the sacrifices of these objects, which were prefiguring and prophetic of the atonement of Jesus Christ, was what allowed Jesus to be reclaimed by his own mother. In a way, it was meant to keep the child from having to be offered to God. Mary offered him to God in the fullest sense, in spite of having offered these substitutionary sacrifices. But back to Leviticus chapter 1. In that chapter, it describes what is happening with the birds, and it's a strange, it's a strange set of instructions. I'm so glad that when I became a deacon, it was pretty simple to pass the sacrament. Uh, having to pull all these off, reading the book of Leviticus is like reading the church handbook of instructions for ancient Israel. It's pretty graphic. These were the days when people would slaughter their own animals for meat, and so if you're a butcher, you're well prepared for this. The rest of us might get a little squeamish. But in Leviticus 1 verse 14, if the burnt sacrifice for his offering to the Lord be of fowls, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or of young pigeons. And the priest shall bring it unto the altar and wring off his head. Again, hold your stomach there. And bring it, excuse me, and burn it on the altar. And the blood thereof shall be wrung out at the side of the altar. So here we see an animal being sacrificed, the shedding of its blood. So far, I hope that is, is a little bit easier to understand as far as what Jesus would do. Blood sacrifice, the atonement, crucifixion, uh, and so on. But verse 16 was the part that just struck me as, there's got to be something here. Thanks a lot, Amulek. Verse 16, he shall pluck away his crop with his feathers and cast it beside the altar on the east part by the place of the ashes. And then verse 17 kind of sum, sums it up with a few other things about what to do and not to do with the wings and so on. But what struck me, and this was years ago, before teaching the Old Testament for the first time, what's up with the feathers and the ashes and the east side of the altar? If everything points to the atonement of Jesus Christ, what do those elements say about that? Feathers, east, ashes. Well, I kept thinking about it and nothing came to mind. Couldn't figure it out at all. But I just felt this nudge like, oh, just keep reading. It'll make sense later on. Don't get hung up over this, but keep it in the back of your mind. It'll eventually come, come uh, make sense. That, by the way, has been great advice to help me understand scripture and the temple endowment and anything symbolic that the Lord wants to teach. Keep it in mind. Don't, don't get paralyzed over not understanding it yet. Just keep studying, keep learning, keep living the gospel, and things will make sense as, as you go along. Well, that was the case for me. I just had no idea how many pages I'd have to turn to get there. Now, the Lord has an interesting sense of humor because I finally found a clue to answer this. Guess where? On the last page of the Old Testament. It's like, seriously? It's like a thousand pages later? But when you get to Malachi chapter 4, now as members of the church, we... we zoom forward too fast and get straight to those last two verses, right? Hearts of fathers and children turning to one another. 
But if you go earlier in the verse, the begin or in the chapter, the way it begins in verse one, two, and three first talks about the day coming that will burn as an oven, and the proud and those that do wickedly being stubble, and the day coming that will burn them up, leaving them neither root nor branch. And all of a sudden, it was like, wait, burning them, stubble. Is that where we're seeing the ashes here from that sacrifice back in Leviticus chapter one? Ashes are specifically mentioned in verse three. They shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. But what about those other two elements of Leviticus one, the burnt offering or sin offering of, of birds? There was something about the east side of the altar and something about feathers. Well, look at verse two. But unto you that fear my name shall the son of righteousness arise. Now this is the S-U-N of righteousness, but the capital S-U-N of righteousness, a personified, a being, a deity, a son of righteousness arising. What direction does the sun arise from? From the east. It was starting to click. And then the next verse, the next phrase, excuse me, the son of righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. And it all clicked. Healing in his wings. There's the feathers arising on the east side of the altar, there from the place of ashes. No wonder God can bring beauty from ashes. He arises from it, phoenix-like. If you're still thinking of Christmas carols and the great Charles Wesley, how about this one from Hark the Herald Angels Sing? Same place where he speaks of mildly laying his glory by. How about this line? Light and life to all he brings risen with healing in his wings. As I extend my Christmas morning eight days in to read a little bit further in Luke chapter 2, I see that in Mary's humble sacrifice of these two birds. Now there's one other place in Leviticus that speaks of two birds coming together for a particular sacrifice. This one is even weirder than the one I just talked about from Leviticus 1. This is Leviticus 14. And it's honestly one of my favorite rituals. I kind of wish that bishops would still perform this in their ironic role. But what it consists of is the cleansing of a leper. Remember when Jesus healed the lepers, the ten, and said, go and show yourself to the priest. The one turns around and thanks him for it, right? But it's interesting that Jesus was saying, go to the priest. Do what the law of Moses commands. In other words, Jesus had a testimony of Leviticus 14. And that stands to reason since he lived it, it all pointed to him, and he fulfilled it. Now, it's way more detailed than we have time to get into today. It's fascinating. Elements of symbolic rebirth and so on. But what I want to talk about briefly is the two birds that were a part of it. Because again, as Mary brings these two birds for the sacrifice, I can't help but think of this ritual as well. You take these two birds, and you're supposed to go to, a, you get a clay pot. Again, let me back up. Whenever a, a, a leper gets better, he's supposed to come to the priest, and the priest is supposed to check, kind of check it out and make sure they're, they're completely healed, that they're not contagious and are going to contaminate the house of Israel. And if everything checked out okay, this was the ritual, the, the rite of passage, so to speak, to bring them back into the community. You took two birds, you took a clay pot, you took some scarlet material, some hyssop plants, some cedar wood, you went out to a, a, some kind of moving water, and then you took the, one of the birds, put it into the clay pot, held it out over the water, and wrung its neck. Again, sorry to get squeamish, but just like what happened with the other bird. 
Now there's all this bird blood at the bottom of this clay pot. You take the other bird, you wrap it up in these other three elements, the scarlet, the hyssop, and the cedar, and you dip it in the blood that's at the bottom of that clay pot, and then you let the bird go free. And then you take some more of that blood and sprinkle it on the leper seven times and wipe a little on his right ear lobe and the thumb of his right hand and the big toe of his right foot. I told you it was a little bit interesting. And again, thank you, Amulek, for telling me everything's pointing to the atonement. Think hard. Now again, I won't unlock all of those. But what, what struck me in this, first of all, was scarlet hyssop cedar. I thought, what's that all about? And I couldn't think of anything until I realized I've seen hyssop somewhere in Scripture. And it dawned on me. At the Passover, it was hyssop plant that they used as their, as their rudimentary paintbrush. They dipped hyssop into the blood of the lamb and painted it on their doorposts, and then it clicked. Oh, hyssop is one. The blood of the lamb, that's the scarlet material. And the cedar wood, there's the doorpost. You take those three elements, and that is Passover. When what happened? When the firstborn died so that the slaves could go free. Do you understand the power of that imagery? And so you take this bird. Well, how do you know which one to kill? It's all substitutionary. It could have happened to either one. But one bird dies so the other bird can fly free. And which bird is it that dies? The one you put into the clay pot and hold over the running water. Now that one I had to think about for a long time. Running water made me think, oh, it's pure, it's moving, oh, it's living. And I started to think, okay, Christ is the living water. But the bird and the clay pot? That one didn't make sense until I got a clue from King Benjamin. Because in his incredible life-changing address near the end of his life, he says, Behold, the time cometh and is not far distant, that with power the Lord Omnipotent who reigneth, who was and is from all eternity to all eternity, shall come down from heaven, come down, there's condescension, among the children of men, and then this phrase that just captured my attention, and shall dwell in a tabernacle of clay. Click. Tabernacle of clay. Of course, the mortal body, Adam made from the dust of the earth, symbolically. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, right? That man is less than the dust of the earth. The human body is nothing but a tabernacle of clay for something else, something not earth-bound to occupy. No wonder a bird is used as a symbol for the Spirit in terms of the Holy Ghost. And so if a bird enters this clay pot, that's the Spirit entering the mortal tabernacle of clay. Hold it out over that living water. What has that priest just done? In a symbolic way, he has reenacted Christmas condescension. That the spirit of premortal Jehovah has entered the mortal tabernacle provided by his mother according to the flesh. This is incarnation. This is Christmas condescension. And it will eventually result in Easter, atonement, crucifixion, resurrection so that you and I, bundled up, encompassed about by Passover symbolism, Easter, can fly free. His healing in our wings, because he was willing to have his premortal divine wings clipped, to come down to earth 
and walk upon it as a mere mortal like you and me. It's only fitting that just a few verses later, King Benjamin, in describing condescension, would say this, He shall be called Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of heaven and earth. Again, there's that, that shocking juxtaposition. How could the Father of heaven and earth become a Son of God on the earth he created? The irony of the incarnation, the paradox of the condescension, it's all there. But how does that verse end? The Father of heaven and earth, the creator of all things from the beginning, and then get back to the lower version. And his mother shall be called Mary. I'm always struck that in that chapter, as well as in a few other places in the Book of Mormon, where the atonement is the focal point, look hard and you'll see Mary waiting in the wings. You'll see behind this picture of Easter, the shadow of Christmas. And it's always because it's Christmas condescension. The other place you see it most dramatically, after Mosiah chapter 3, is in Alma chapter 7. Now, for many of you, you probably know exactly what verses I'm thinking of. Uh, I always remember when I was a kid, uh, thanks to my love of Slurpees, that it was Alma 7.11. And I always knew that was one of my favorite verses, and that's the mnemonic device that helped me remember it. Now, Alma 7, 11, 12, and 13 is this theological masterpiece, one of the most important things you'll find anywhere in the Book of Mormon. But we do it a disservice by starting to read in verse 11, because notice what happens if you read verse 10 as preparation. And behold, he shall be born of Mary at Jerusalem, which is the land of our forefathers. Again, Bethlehem is so close to Jerusalem, and it's been 500 years since any Nephite has been there, that it is the land of Jerusalem. She being a virgin, a precious and chosen vessel. Vessel, do you picture this clay pot held out over the water? The Spirit will enter. She shall be overpowered and conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost and bring forth a son, yea, even the Son of God. There is Christmas condescension. And then what is 11, 12, and 13? It is Easter. He shall go forth, suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind. And this that the word might be fulfilled, which saith he will take upon him the pains and the sicknesses of his people. But what does it take to take upon himself those kinds of mortal afflictions? It takes mortality. And he received that gift from his mother. You see, if you have children of your own, this typically happens right after birth. There almost seems to be this fight between mom and dad over dibs on different body parts. Oh, my eyes, uh, your, your nose, your hair, or my lack thereof, whatever it might be. But to just see yourself in this infant and the combination of the two, the dual inheritance of mom and dad in each child, is a beautiful thing. Well, in Jesus's case, if you were to draw the family tree each of us have multiple sets. Spiritually speaking, it's heavenly father and heavenly mother. Physically speaking, it's an earthly father and an earthly mother. But in Jesus' case, the father of his body was also the father of his spirit. And that changes everything. But to have a mortal mother is equally essential for what he was going to need to do in Gethsemane and on Calvary. You see, if we, if we had these, this dual inheritance, what am I receiving from my father? Immortality, divinity. And what is he receiving from his mother? Mortality, humanity. 
in, in some ways, dad gives you the gift of life and mother gives you the gift of death, which again, doesn't sound like much of a gift. But again, thank Eve, there's no real life without death. And that would especially be true for Jesus Christ. For him to be able to ascend with us, he first had to descend with us. And Mary provides that condescension. The Father provides the power of ascension. In order to suffer pains and afflictions and temptations, you have to have a mortal body to experience suffering. But to have that suffering become redemptive, that's the power of God within him. Mary made it possible for Jesus to die on the cross. Gods can do everything except die, after all. And yet, it is the Father that allowed Jesus to overcome death for him and for all of us. You see the dual inheritance, Christmas, underwriting Easter? Verse 12, he continues. Again, look for both. He will take upon him death. The fact he could take it instead of just succumbing to it lets you know this is a different kind of death. In fact, at the transfiguration of Jesus with Peter, James, and John, the most interesting verb is used. As Moses and Elijah are, are, are ministering to them all, they speak of the death that Jesus would accomplish in Jerusalem. Accomplish death? We usually talk about suffering death or succumbing to death, but not for Jesus. Jesus for Jesus, death was something he accomplished. It was something he did, something he took upon him. And he had his mother to thank for the ability to have death occur and th his father to thank for the power to be able to take it on and vanquish it. He took it upon him, thank you, mother, that he may loose the bands of death which bind his people, thank you, father. He will take upon him their infirmities, thank you, mother, that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh. I told you that word would be important. We saw that back in 1 Nephi 11. She will be his mother according to the flesh because he needs to know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. I need to be able to have not just condescension but compassion. And compassion is a result of condescension. Calm with passion, suffering, feeling. Jesus felt with us and he had his mother to thank for the ability to do so. He felt it according to the flesh. Elder Maxwell used to talk about the difference between understanding things cognitively and understanding things experientially. And Jesus was the ultimate example of that. As a divine being, he would have understood what we went through in mortality cognitively. It would make sense to him. But not until he came down in the flesh would he understand those things experientially. I've read what to expect when you're expecting. I can sit there alongside my wife in the, in the delivery ward and just, I'm with you, honey. I know exactly what you're feeling. I read the book. And after she's done squeezing my hand to death or throwing something at me, she'd say, you get it cognitively. You have no clue experientially. And so when Jesus says to Joseph Smith that the Son of Man has descended, we could say Christmas condescended below them all. He understands it experientially now. He's been incarnated. He knows it according to the flesh. He admits both in verse 13. Now the Spirit knoweth all things cognitively. Nevertheless, the Son of God, thanks to Mary, suffered according to the flesh, incarnation, condescension, 
experiential understanding that he might take upon him the sins of his people, that he might blot out their transgressions according to the power of his deliverance. And now behold, this is the testimony which is in me. It's the testimony that's in me too. And a testimony that is reaffirmed every Easter of ascension and every Christmas of condescension. Once you start seeing the dual nature of Jesus, inheritance from father and inheritance from mother, you start seeing those, almost a, a schism of soul within Jesus, uh, the closer he gets to atonement. As, as Gethsemane approaches, it is a war within. We all understand that just from Fast Sunday. When the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, and there's a divine side that says, no, don't sneak the Snickers in the pantry. And then this mortal side that says, but nobody's going to know. In Jesus' case, keep an eye on this as you study the New Testament. For example, this verse from John chapter 10, verse 18. Speaking of his own life, Jesus says, No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. How's that possible? He answers, I have power to lay it down. That's my mortality. Thank you, Mother. And I have power to take it again. That's my divinity. Thank you, Father. Later in John chapter 12, he says, as, as Gethsemane looms larger, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Now, of course, that's what his mortal side is saying. And yet, what is his divine side saying? But for this cause came I unto this hour. You get a sense of this battle within him? Mother against father, in a way. Divine inheritance versus mortal inheritance. You see it beautifully and hauntingly in Luke chapter 12, verse 50, where Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. It's not a baptism in water at the hands of John the Baptist. This is a baptism in blood, a submersion in suffering. It's Gethsemane that he's looking towards. And he admits, and how am I straightened till it be accomplished? Straightened, not in terms of being kind of smoothed out and made linear. Straightened, A-I-T instead of G-H-T, as in a, a, a straight of water being crushed between two protruding land masses. Jesus is feeling crushed, his humanity is, by the demands of his divinity. The most well-known example of the two sides at war is what Jesus said repeatedly in Gethsemane itself. Father, I'm son now speaking to you. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. That's his mortality speaking. And immediately he says, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That's divinity speaking. Jesus was both to perfection. I won't take the time to do it here because I did it at length in the video we did of Mosiah chapter 15. It's one of the trickiest passages in all the Book of Mormon as far as I can tell because it really does seem like Abinadi is a closet Trinitarian and that concerns people. He's speaking of Jesus as both father and son, and it really does, it's just one God, and it's, whoa, whoa, but he's father and son. I actually had a former reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints member turned evangelical attack me as a missionary saying, you don't even believe your own book because Abinadi is preaching Trinitarianism. And I was so struck by that that it's forced me to really grapple with those verses. And again, watch the video of, of Mosiah 15 if you want the full explanation. But the simplest thing to say here 
is that Abinadi is not trying to explain the nature of God. He's not Trinitarian thinking. He's trying to explain the nature of the atonement. He did just quote Isaiah 53, after all, about this suffering servant through whose stripes we would be healed. After just teaching the most atonement-centered chapter in all of the Old Testament, Abinadi then explains how Jesus was able to do it. And it boils down to Christmas condescension. That Jesus has this dual inheritance from Father and Mother Mary. The way he describes it there, he could have called it his divine side and his mortal side. He could have called it his father side and his mother side. But in that text, Abinadi calls it Jesus' father side and Jesus' son side. He simply calls it father and son. But it's never talking about heavenly father as a distinct being. It's simply the two sides of Jesus that allow for the atonement to be made possible. So as you read those texts, every time you see the word father or son, just add the word side after it in parentheses. The father side, the son side, both of those sides were perfectly compatible in Jesus and both perfectly, absolutely necessary in order for the atonement to occur. I imagine any of you fathers or mothers know what it feels like to have within you both a parent side and a child side. Times you have to be the parent and make the hard decisions and times you feel like a child and wish your parents were still making the decisions for you. I think you sense both that father side and son side anytime that you grapple with what I call the contraries of the infinite and the intimate. We talked about that with the brother of Jared's vision, that he sees all things and the role that the Lord plays in all things, and yet he also sees his finger. The premortal Lord, spirit body of Christ. There's some Christmas condescension to preview of coming attractions. Or when Jesus himself is speaking to Nephi moments before the incarnation. Notice what Jesus says to Nephi in 3 Nephi chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Lift up your head and be of good cheer. After all, any time the birth of Jesus is announced, it's referred to as good tidings of great joy. So be of good cheer. Behold, the time is at hand. Light is about to dispel darkness. Life is about to overcome death. On this night shall the sign be given. On the morrow come I into the world. Talk about a, an eventful Christmas Eve. To show unto the world that I will fulfill all that which I have caused to be spoken by the mouth of my holy prophets. Behold, I come unto my own to fulfill all things which I have made known unto the children of men from the foundation of the world. And listen to this. And to do the will both of the Father and of the Son now, on the one hand, you'd think, okay, that, that's Heavenly Father and then Himself. I'm doing what my Father wants and what I want. But what He says next helps clarify, no, He's still just talking about the two sides of Himself that are about to become one within hours. Of the Father because of me, He says. He's not, talking, he's not invoking the, the identity or name of His Father in Heaven as a separate, distinct being. It's, I have a divine side. I have a father side. I am premortal Jehovah, still right now. And it is my desire to come among you. It is my desire to condescend of the father because of me and of the son because of my flesh. I'm about to become son side because I'm putting on flesh, condescension, incarnation.
that does not dilute or dispel my father's side. Both of us, me, I should say, my divine side and my soon-to-be mortal side are coming together in perfect unity with a desire to be a blessing to all of your humanity yet to become divinity. Deep doctrine here, but powerful. Now, this idea of Christmas condescension you see taught over and over in the letters of Paul. Paul was the great theologian. Jesus was so humble that he would speak and teach and give stories and parables and, and heal and set an example. But he, let the hard, he left the hard theologizing to Paul. As such a well-educated Pharisee, Paul was no stranger to that kind of theologizing. But to Christianize his theology, he, he does an incredible job. Listen to a few of the verses and try to picture Christmas condescension here. Romans 1, 3 and 4. His son, Jesus Christ, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. There's the son side. Mary, humanity, the flesh, incarnation. And declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Father side, a divinity, ascension. How about this from Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. Again, this irony, especially among those misogynists, perhaps, that would look down upon women, and yet Paul is lifting them up. He surrounded himself by incredibly faithful sisters constantly. He relied upon their spiritual strength. But to say, again, here's the shock and awe of incarnation. Here's the, the surprise of condescension. He was made of a woman. In fact, the only one who mortally was made only of a woman, with no mortal man involved. He was made under the law, all this low, condescending side, to redeem them that were under the law, Paul continues, that we might receive the adoption of sons. In other words, God the Son, Jesus, became the Son of God in order to help all of us become the sons and daughters of God as well. Back to Romans, this time chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. A lot of flesh there, right? But that's the idea of incarnation and condescension. The law was weak. It was fleshly. It was outward ordinances and performances, as we describe the Mosaic law. And Jesus was willing to condescend to that level too, to put on that same weak flesh so that he could condemn the flesh and overcome it and help us all rise with him. How about this from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9? For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, there's the divinity, yet for your sakes he became poor, there's the mortality, that ye through his poverty might be rich. See that beautiful role reversal? He'll take our place so that we can eventually take his. Not as his at his expense, obviously, but to rise with him, just as he descended with us. One of the most beautiful is in Hebrews. Again, those who understood the Old Testament and the law of Moses so well, the Hebrew saints. Hebrews 2, verses 9 through 11. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. In other words, he didn't hover above the earth. He, he, he was able to walk on the water, but that doesn't mean he couldn't sink if he had allowed it to. 
he didn't walk above all of the turmoil and temptation and challenge and struggle of humanity. He fully embraced it. He didn't, he didn't stop descending at angel level. He didn't stop descending until he had descended below all things, beneath humanity itself. Why? So that he could suffer death. Thank you, Mother, for that ability. But then Paul goes on. Crowned with glory and honor. Here's ascension, right? That he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. It was his mother that gave him those taste buds. If it were only his father's side, he wouldn't have tasted a thing. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And then my favorite part of this passage. For both he that sanctifieth, that's Jesus, and they who are sanctified, that's us, are all of one for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Again, if he only comes to angel level, he's still above us. If he maintains that premortal divinity, he's infinitely above us. But to condescend, then this son of God then becomes brother to every other son and daughter of God. He becomes one of us so that we can become one with him. And I love that the way Paul describes that. He's not ashamed of that. If you've ever been with somebody who treats you a certain way in private, like as equals, as friends, but then in public treats you very differently, as if they were ashamed to be seen with you, like it's almost like they lower their standards to hang out with you because you're friends, you grew up together, but then they became popular and you didn't. But over here... And, 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 but again, behind closed doors, it's like, oh, buddy, it's just like old times. But then out in public, it's like, no, I've, I've got a reputation. And you kind of sully that. So a little ashamed there. No, not Jesus. He's the type that would keep you under his wing and just introduce you to all of the people that, that you don't think you're worthy of. He's not ashamed at all. My oldest son is such a wonderful kid. And he was talking just the other night about someone he, that was a year ahead of him in school that he totally looked up to. Mr. Popular, Mr. Athletic, Mr. Smart, just had it all going for him. He's out on the mission field now. And the way my son described it was just with such humble gratitude that when he was with this friend, even a year distant in age, he knew that his friend was never ashamed of him. To be the only guy from this circle of friends and then to be brought into this bigger circle of, of big guns and just to be under his friend's wing as he's introducing him to these other friends. Oh, you got to know this guy. He's awesome. And just how that made my son feel about himself. Well, we should all feel that way, knowing that Jesus Christ himself is not ashamed to call us brethren. I love that. Now, that whole idea of condescension, of Christmas condescension, it goes hand in hand with one of the most beautiful attributes you'll see of Jesus. And that is his beautiful compassion. We talked about that earlier. If you have the time, in fact, if you don't, make the time to study the word compassion every time it, find, it appears in Scripture. It is such a profound lesson to see what Jesus is willing to suffer with us. And that compassion is always a result of his condescension. Another word to describe that is empathy. To feel not just with, but to feel in path, feeling, suffering, M, in, 
to feel that within. And that's part of Christmas condescension as well. How about this verse from the Psalms? Speaking of the Lord, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, for he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. No wonder he can be compassionate to us. No wonder he can be merciful. He knows what we're made of. He took on the tabernacle of clay, and so he knows how, what it feels like to have dirt under his fingernails. He knows how much we struggle with the dirt that we're made of ourselves. He remembers that and takes it all into account. In fact, you'll see that in the, Ma- the Mosiah 15 account too. It's the sun side that makes intercession for us. So relieved by that. It's the side of him that gets us best, that knows our frame. How about this from Isaiah 63? In all their affliction, he was afflicted. That's empathy. That's compassion. That's condescension. Or as it's described in Hebrews 13, remember them that are in bonds. But don't just remember them from a distance. It says, remember them that are in bonds as bound with them and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Or we could say in the flesh. Or we could say incarnated right alongside with them. You understand what he's getting at? It's not enough to remember them in bonds. You've got to be in bonds with them. Then your empathy will be motivational. You'll want to help because you're in that same circumstance. There's the mourn with those that mourn. There's the comfort those that stand in need of comfort. You've become them. You're in their body as they are suffering. Or in section 30 of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 6, be you afflicted in all his afflictions ever lifting up your heart unto me in prayer and faith for his and your deliverance. See what he's getting at there? It's one thing to see that affliction from a distance and pray for their deliverance. But if you fully join them, if you condescend to that level, then your prayers are so much more personal and powerful because you are with them in the trial. Now you're praying for your collective deliverance, not just theirs. From a safe distance. Section 62, verse 1. Behold and hearken, O ye elders of my church, saith the Lord your God, even Jesus Christ, your advocate, who knoweth the weakness of man, and therefore how to succor them who are tempted. That's one of the great gifts of Christmas condescension also. I've often said that the great gift that came out of Gethsemane for us was atonement. But the great gift that came out of Gethsemane for Jesus was empathy. But it didn't just start with Gethsemane. It started with Bethlehem. It was Christmas condescension. Just a few more. I, I hope that you're not tiring of our, our, our time around the candle with the flickering flame illuminating our scriptures. But from the book of Hebrews, again, I, I think this is the, the book, the letter of, that, that describes things best as far as Christmas condescension is concerned. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. There's the incarnation, flesh and blood. That through death, thank you, mother, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Succumb to it, mother. Overcome it. Vanquish it, father. And deliver them who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. We were scared to death. We are scared to death all the way up till death. It's always staring us in the face. Not so with Jesus. He knew he would and could succumb to it. Sun side. 
but that he would vanquish it for himself and for all of us, Father said. And here's how it's all possible. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels. Right? He doesn't just stop at that level. He descends beneath it. But he took on him the seed of Abraham. I'm going to be just like you. A, a mortal son, just like the seed of Abraham would entail. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. It's got to be one of, one of us. That he might be a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Not one that looks down his nose at those of us that are mere dirt, since he took on dust and knows our frame himself. He did all that to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, even though he never succumbed to it, he is able to succor them that are tempted, because he knows what it's like to face them. Now fast forward two more chapters. And in Hebrews chapter 4, one of the most beautiful descriptions of this for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore, as a result of that understanding, okay, that therefore is beautiful, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You understand what was being described in that passage? We don't have an untouchable high priest. He's not in some kind of sterile cell far above us, just kind of distantly helping us through our issues. He comes right down into the mud, the dirt, the clay to be with us. He is not untouchable. In fact, he is willing to touch us even in our sin, our infirmity. Think about this leper who braves the multitude, who comes boldly to this throne of grace and he who sits upon it and pleads for mercy, for compassion. If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. I know you can. I just hope that you will. And the Lord, lowering himself to his level in all ways, said, I will. But he didn't just heal him. He touched him and healed him. And I sometimes wonder if it was the touch that did as much good as the actual physical healing. Lepers were considered untouchable, but not to a high priest that himself was not untouchable. Trust me, leper. Me touching you, you touching me, it is not your uncleanness that is contagious. It's my virtue that will come out of me and flow into you. It's exactly what happened with a woman with the issue of blood, which is the female equivalent of this male leper. Almost everyone in scripture, if you find a male, you'll find a female equivalent if you look hard enough. And this woman with the issue of blood, her own form of ceremonial leprosy, cut off from the congregation of Israel, considered it so dangerous in some ways, ritually, ceremonially, to touch the hem of Jesus's garment. It's the closest I can come. Because he is untouchable, at least for someone in my circumstance. And yet when Jesus stops the train and says, who touched me? Can you picture the, the emotional roller coaster she's on? And to confess, I touched you. And for Jesus to reassure, it's by your faith that, this, that you have been made whole. 
You haven't made me unclean. My virtue has made you whole. Your faith has enabled that to happen. In both instances, both the leper and the woman with the issue of blood came boldly to the throne of grace because somewhere deep down they knew that the Lord that they were seeking to touch never kept himself untouchable. That is the gift of Christmas condescension. Shepherds, come into the stable. Wise men, come into the house. Kneel and worship. Offer your gifts. Come and see, Jesus would say throughout his ministry. Please let me conclude this Christmas gift with one last scriptural story. It's an odd one. It's in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 4, where Elisha is trying to raise a dead boy back to life. His distraught mother has come speeding on a chariot to alert the prophet of her desperate need. And Elisha, in this instance, sends his servant ahead with his staff. Elisha seemed to be more willing to, to delegate than a lot of other prophets. And it worked fine for Naaman and for others. And so just, you know, Gehazi, you can take care of this. And his servant goes. And with the prophet's staff, thinking everything's going to be fine. And yet it wasn't. He, he tried to perform the miracle, but was unsuccessful. And so what happens? Elisha eventually follows and comes to perform the miracle himself. But it's one of the strangest ways to heal someone I've ever seen. Compared to what we see there, putting some consecrated oil and laying on our hands is, is pretty simple stuff. But for Elisha, he goes himself and he lies down upon the dead body of this boy. Hands on hands, body on body, face on face. And eventually, life returns to this lifeless boy. And as I've pondered and wrestled with that miracle, I've wondered, what is he teaching? And it's hit me, when it comes to bringing life to us dead mortals, this is not something that Jesus can simply send someone else to do. He has to do it himself. He doesn't have a staff, no magic wand to wish away our infirmities. He has to assume them. He comes down personally. He condescends to our level. He matches us incarnation to incarnation. He sees through our blind eyes. He speaks through our dumb mouth. He lends life to our lifeless dust. And he lifts us in the process. I'm so grateful that he's willing to do that for me, that he knows my frame and he isn't horrified by what I'm made of. I hope sometime this Christmas you sing or hear that incredible anthem, O Holy Night. My wife is the French speaker in the family and has helped me learn at least enough that I can make sense of the original version of that song, Cantique de Noël. And to see condescension taught, Christmas condescension taught so powerfully, especially in the French original, but even in the English, sing with me. He knows our needs. To our weakness, he's no stranger.
that is Christmas condescension from a much more recent Christmas carol. Welcome to our world. Imagine shepherds and wise men. Imagine angels and Mary and Joseph singing this kind of a song as they welcomed Jesus into their world, which in many ways was much more fittingly his own. But this line, wrap our injured flesh around you, breathe our air and walk our sod, rob our sin and make us holy, perfect son of God. Such powerful lyrics to wrap himself, not just with swaddling clothes, but to wrap himself in injured flesh, our own, that is incarnation, to breathe our air, to walk our sod, that is condescension. And it all came about at Christmas. So my dear friends, all around the world, wherever this Christmas time finds you, enjoy all the gifts, but don't forget him who is the source of every good gift. Enjoy the Christmas lights, but don't forget the light of the world. Enjoy your thoughts of old Saint Nick, but think about him who can make saints out of each of us. Depending on where you live, enjoy your white Christmas. But please try to remember him who can take your scarlet sins and make them white as snow. Enjoy the ornaments you hang on your tree. But don't forget him who hung on a tree at Calvary. Enjoy leaving out the milk and cookies. But please try to find more meaning in the bread and water. Enjoy the man in the red suit. But don't forget him who wore the purple robe. Enjoy your full stockings, but do not forget the empty tomb. Yes, let Christmas be a time of great joy. But take time to remember the man of sorrows acquainted with grief, who carried our sorrows and carried us through them, who was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. If you keep reading ahead in Luke chapter 2, at that same scene where two turtle doves are offered, you then meet one other figure who seldom makes the nativity play, a sweet, aged old man named Simeon, who throughout his life has been told and prophesied and reconfirmed through the Holy Ghost that someday you will see the Lord's Christ. You'll see it. You'll live to behold him. But it's that promise that makes the fulfillment of the promise so beautiful. In Luke chapter 2, verse 26, it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. It's going to be a visual experience for you, Simeon. But when the experience actually came, verse 27, he came by the Spirit, that same Spirit that had been uh, promising him this all along, into the temple, best possible place to find the baby Jesus. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God. Do you catch the difference between prophecy and fulfillment in Simeon's case? He was told, you get to see. And what did he do as soon as he did see? He took him up in his arms. 
It's like a little kid. Can I see that? And like, we see with our eyes, not with our hands, but not for Simeon. The mere sight was insufficient. I pray, brothers and sisters, this Christmas season, that you don't rest content merely to keep Jesus at a safe distance, to see him in the elements of Christmas all around you, but that when you see him, when you sense his presence, that you come running, that you take him in your arms, and that you bless him and bless God for the gift that he's given at Christmas. I testify of Christmas condescension. I am grateful that he was willing to come down to my level, that we might rise again to his. I testify of his compassion, of his perfect empathy. We can come boldly to the throne of grace, then why not come worshipfully to the manger? Thank you.